Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Elizabeth Alexander is a poet. She spoke at President Obama's first inauguration. She's an author. Her 2016 book, The Light of the World, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, reflected on the life and sudden loss of her husband. And she's a philanthropist. As president of the Andrew Mellon Foundation, Alexander is focused on ensuring the arts and artists survive the coronavirus pandemic. We talk about the grant program she and other foundations have created to keep artists going. We talk about the importance of the arts to society. Human beings have never lived without art. People draw on cave walls. People come together and sing. People gather in groups and tell stories of the tribe. This goes across the world, across human history. It ain't ending. And Alexander shares her advice for those who've lost loved ones suddenly in the pandemic. And you can hear it all right now. Elizabeth Alexander, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It is wonderful to be talking to you today. So we know the devastation the coronavirus has had on the economy, on healthcare, and healthcare workers, but not enough attention has been paid to the impact of the pandemic on the arts, has there? No, there really hasn't. And I think it gets to very, very fundamental questions. Are artists a part of our economy? Is the arts sector an important part of our economy? That's one question. Another question is, why do we need the arts? Why do we need to support the arts? How can we live without the arts? And what does it mean to be helpful uh, to uh, not only the arts writ large, but to artists? When our friend, Ford Foundation President Darren Walker, was on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, he mentioned a daily phone call he's on with philanthropists trying to figure out how to buttress nonprofits during this time. Are you on those calls or involved in similar efforts? Yes, and it's uh, so wonderful to have Darren as a comrade and partner and brother in this work because he keeps us moving forward always. He keeps us void and his eye is always on the seemingly impossible. <laughs> so uh, that, uh, that is a, a very important force to have in our field. Um, and it's very important for me also, um, since he brought me into this world, uh, to, to have that companionship. So yes, um, philanthropists, we are talking uh, regularly. New York philanthropists, national groups of philanthropists, art philanthropists, uh, finding out what is going on with people's grantees, because that's our connection to the ground, if you will, uh, what we're hearing, what we're seeing, uh, and how we might think about being helpful and also bringing other people into efforts to be helpful. So, for example, um, uh, Ford and Bloomberg gathered us and led an effort in New York City uh, to uh, put together a fund which included private donors. 
And this is very important when, you know, the, the philanthropy money, it's there and we want to spend it well, but the private money could go anywhere right? or could not go out at all. <laughs> if you have a lot of, of, of wealth, you don't necessarily have to spend it and you certainly don't have to spend it on the arts. So the important thing of that consortium, which got up to $100 million for granting in the arts and also in social services in New York City, which we felt was so important because we are really, 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 really in the heart of things uh, in this pandemic. And that overlaps on the arts front with, uh, you know, there are gorgeous arts everywhere, but New York has the arts as a crucial part of its identity and economy. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so with that effort, uh, the um, Community Foundation of New York City was the administrator. And we had representatives from our foundations who looked at grant proposals. The grant portal went up like in a week. Money went out every week. We're almost at the end of that money, um, which says something about the need but also I was extremely proud of the efficiency uh, with which we were able to collectively make decisions and be helpful. Um, then there are other efforts nationally. Um, at, with Mellon, we were very, very involved um, with USA Artists Artist Relief Fund. And this came from the understanding that no arts without artists, mm -hmm. individual artists, uh, have been hit like you cannot imagine. 95% of individual artists report loss of income due to this pandemic. 65% of individual artists are fully unemployed. So just to imagine that, think about our beautiful jazz musicians, right? Um, who depend on the road, uh, who, you know, that's, that's how they do their jobs. If you think about our poets, um, many poets have other jobs, but going out, having book tours, doing gigs, poetry readings, that's part of how we do what we do. Um, artists being able to get into their studios, being able to uh, you know, get the materials they need and work in the way that they need to. Dancers and theater artists, how are you going to rehearse? How are you going to come together, let alone put on a play for an audience? So these are really, really staggering numbers. And what we thought we could do with the national effort was to say to individuals who are not necessarily institutionally affiliated, here's a way that you can quickly apply. And again, review the money got out every week mm -hmm. um, uh, and get some funds to tide you over. Well, I, I was going to ask you about the Artists Relief Fund and to talk about the specifics of it, because if if I remember correctly, it's $1,000 a month to 100 artists through September. What are the nitty gritty deta details? Yeah, the nitty gritty details. And um, also, I should say that you know when um, it was launched, uh, and I wanted to shout out Dina Hagag, who runs USA Artists and is a supernova of energy organization and compassion. And there are many other partners in, in this, uh, including um, Young Arts in Miami, wonderful Sarah Arison, but Dina's really been the motor. So um, it's actually $5,000 individual grants. A hundred $5,000 grants will be given out once a week until September 1st. So, and it's national. 
Mm-hmm. But think about that. This is all artists everywhere. When they launched the portal, it crashed, you know, within hours because 12,000 people the first day put in full applications. So, you know, this is, and this is following, and, you know, I'm a poet, so um, that both, those are my people, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and artists are my people. So, you know, I was hearing from uh, writer friends and musician friends, it, it, they were in a panic because they just like dominoes looked at the gigs falling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, folks were, you know, just jumped on it and applied, and then it doubled the next day and doubled the next day. So it would be very good to be able to augment that fund because what I've learned um, in a very, very humbling way is that all of these zeros are but a drop in the bucket. And this pandemic uh, is going to have long reaching effects. So let me make sure I I heard this right. It's a $5,000 grant that goes to 100 artists, 100 different artists each week? Yes, until September 1st. Until September 1st. Okay, so this is even more incredible than than I thought it was. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, you you said what we're hearing on the ground from from artists. What specifically are you hearing from artists on the ground that um, motivated you and other philanthropists to to try to move heaven and earth to help them? Well, um, uh, let's start with uh, musicians, let's say. Um, uh, And um, there's the question of the institutions that we have, beautiful institutions like Jazz at Lincoln Center or SF Jazz, uh, you you know, wonderful institutions that without paying audiences have to figure out how to carry on. Then to the individuals, uh, you know, and, and, and one thing about artists that really is true, it's a generalization, it's, it, but it's true, is that artists are extremely resilient. Uh, being an artist, deciding to do this strange thing means that you can put things together with string and tape. I mean, that's, that's sort of the very definition of it. Right. And that you can do things that aren't right in front of you. Um, but so, so you see resilience with people who are saying, okay, I can't, you know, do my gigs right now, but I have a piano in my home because I have to, you know, and, uh, and what I'm at the fundamental level, I got to make music before I can share it. So let me make music. Let me keep my chops up. Writers are saying, you know, I, I was actually sponsoring, um, a group of, of poets to a, a conference that we were having, um, a Mellon conference in Puerto Rico for some young scholars. And we decided to bring poets, uh, Puerto Rican poets to, to that gathering. But when we had to cancel the gathering, then, you know, that was, was one of many, you know, and especially going into, I used to remember the, the trifecta of moving from Black History Month to Women's History Month to Poetry Month. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's like, for, for, for some of us, that's peak gig season. Um, and, you know, not being able to do that. And more importantly, if you think about the kinds of venues that invite writers, the venue's future is uncertain. Universities invite writers. Universities don't know how they're going to open in the fall. Budgets have been cut dramatically. And I can tell you that the budget for the poetry readings, though I would wish that they could remain intact, um, and, and in some places they will, 
are not necessarily a priority when you're thinking about like, how are we just even gonna get university uh, uh, students and communities up and, and running again? So there's no real prospect of replacement of those monies. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, people are saying like, we gotta write our way through this. We gotta make our way through this some kind of way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing um, I was reading up on some things and it just sort of hit me as, well, actually this, why didn't I think of this? That also the decimation of say restaurant jobs and things like that, that are uh, the other ways that artists supplement their income, those are gone too. So it's sort of a compounding effect that's happening on the arts community. You know, Elizabeth, even before COVID-19, most folks looked askance at the value of the arts in society, um, where people were wondering, why are we investing in these things, particularly when it comes to arts in the schools or public art? And now that everything is wrecked, I can only imagine how many folks would balk at the notion that saving the arts is vital to restoring society. Many might even think, the arts are a luxury, but not a necessity. And I bet you would vehemently disagree with that notion. Talk to that person who might hold that view and who might be listening right now. Thank you for reminding me to imagine a person on the other end, uh, uh, because uh, the idea of life without the arts, I mean, the place I would start is to say, can you actually imagine living without music? You know, who lives their life without music? Who makes that music? Who trains that musician? What does it take to deliver the music to us so that we can carry around in our phones and put in our ears anything we want to listen to? I choose music as an example because pretty much no one lives without it. Mm -hmm. um, and call attention to the fact that it has to be made and that people have to practice their craft in order to make it something that is worth listening to, something that stirs us. Um, you use the word luxury, and for me, uh, and I bet for you too, that invokes Audre Lorde. Poetry is not a luxury. And there she's talking about the thing that poems in particular give us, the putting form to things that we feel to crystallizing in very, very small spaces in a portable way, what we are experiencing. We are gonna need, you know, here we're going through something with this pandemic that has, it will, will be written in human history. We can count on that. In our lifetimes, we can count on this being, you know, one of the most significant disturbances, if not the most, that we will ever have been through. It is the arts that can help us understand how do we think about isolation? How do we think about loneliness? How do we think about community? How do we think about the things that we prize? How do we experience joy? What does it mean to have beauty in your life? Felicity. What does it mean to have someone give meaning to pain and suffering and to give that to us in a way that we can say, someone else understands how I feel. I'm suffering now. Those are just some of the reasons that the arts are positively essential. Human beings have never lived without art. I say to you, oh person out there, people draw on cave walls, people come together and sing, people gather in groups and tell stories of the tribe. This goes across the world, across human history. It ain't ending. 
So I think that to think about the small ways, the small ways relative to other ways that money is spent in our society. You know, in some countries, they, they put billions of dollars to the arts. Uh, we might think about um, this uh, disproportionately potent and powerful uh, sphere of experience that is there for everyone, usually for free. You know, eight years ago, last month in April, your husband suddenly passed away. And your 2016 book, The Light of the World, um, which I've talked with you about in social settings, is your beautiful memoir that reflects on your love and your loss. And so many people have lost loved ones suddenly in this pandemic. What advice or words of solace could you give them that helped you grieve and carry on? Thank you for asking that. You know, I've been thinking about my my late husband, Fikre Gebreyesus, uh, a great deal more even than usual in this pandemic because he was someone who uh, grew up in, uh, in war in Eritrea, uh, who was a refugee who walked out of his country uh, to Sudan, then went to Germany, then went to Italy, then came to the United States, uh, uh, who, who really lived through uh, very, very, very terrible times, uh, but uh, maintained uh, a, an internal joyousness that in him, he was a painter, was something that, that actually came out uh, in, uh, in his art form that now it's been very wonderful to share that. So I've been thinking about what he would say now having been through so much loss uh, and so much struggle. Um, and I think that um, I want to remind people that um, there are so many histories of endurance um, and that I think to acknowledge our suffering, to acknowledge our suffering and to share our pain and suffering is a way to move through it. When we sometimes feel most alone, we are not alone. And uh, I think there's a line from Rilke, the poet Rilke, that I love so much. Uh, he, he wrote, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep moving. No feeling is final. And so um, I think those are, are really powerful words uh, to move through the pain uh, but keep moving uh, and, and knowing that we're not alone. You are featured prominently in the new documentary, um, Becoming, which is all about former First Lady Michelle Obama's book by the same name, but also the book tour, the national, actually international book tour um, that she did. And um I'm just wondering, what was that experience like? Because watching it, I'm kicking myself that I I never went to one of those those big gatherings. So watching, you know, in the various cities where these were done, it it, it was it was incredible to watch. And for you, as someone who was on stage with her, a part of that, what was that like? <laughs> well, um. The Barclays Center. So you did it in New York. <laughs> I did it in New York and in, and in, in D.C., but I will say the Barclays Center was a moment. There were a lot of people um, in, in the Barclays Center uh, and people who were 
so excited by what she was bringing. And that's what, you know, I, I um, watched the documentary as well, of course. And I had so many different emotions. One of them was to see human beings together and touching. Yes. Uh, Proud to see uh, the first lady's physicality uh, and love, you know, a self-proclaimed hugger, uh, mm -hmm. connecting with people in that way. Um, you know, we, we will hug again, um, but, but that reality um, uh, is not the reality that we're in now. And what she was bringing, you know, the gospel she was bringing was about human beings, about connection, about telling your own story about knowing that you can make your life in so many ways uh, that might be surprising, um, about the integrity of each human being. When you see how she would speak to people, there's one scene you'll remember where there's a, a young teenage girl who's getting very verklempt and very worked up. Yeah. And she said, just, just look at me. Mm. And that, you know, when you think from that stance to just look at another human being and say, I see you. Um, and I think that, you know, in um, our very, very uh, divided and divisive uh, society, um, American society, you know, the angels and the devils are fighting it out. And uh, when you think about what is language for, is it meant to divide us? Is it meant to tell us how we're different from one another? And that that's an irreconcilable? Is it meant to be invective? Is it meant to hurt people? Is it meant to discredit and diminish people? I don't think that's what language is for. Language is to connect us. Language is to say, this is who I am. Who are you? Language is how we give souls to each other. And that's what she was doing on that tour. That sort of took me, uh, it took me on a little road just there. But, but um, um, that was so much of the emotion that I was left with. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when you're talking about you know, language, um, and I was wondering, what does it mean when the language of the president of the United States doesn't match the language of the everyday person who is perhaps looking for empathy, signs of courage, um, uh, examples for how they should react to things? What does it mean at this time when we don't have, uh, quite frankly, a president of the United States who uses language in a way that brings people together or sows, sows us together in, in commonality? Well, um, I think that um, some people are empowered by that language. Some people are named in that language and ideology. Some people cheer with those words. So that is one thing. But I think the other thing is that there are so many other sources. And I think that that's what we have to discipline ourselves to do um, is literally what is our, you know, the, the hours of intake. And, and this is quite relevant now that so many of us are, are in our homes. Uh, what are we intaking? You know, we could leave the, the TV on all day because there's so much news. You need to keep up with what's going on. But uh, that actually wouldn't be healthy um, because we would hear things repeated. 
and it, it gets inside of you. So I think actually um, what's been really astonishing about um, artists in this time doing what they can is, you know, on tw- I've been following on Twitter the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma just in his living room is playing these extraordinary Bach cello concertos and all kinds of things and just giving it away for free. There was a beautiful um, video that the people at Juilliard put together um, that um, had, uh, I think it was Ravel's Bolero, dancers and uh, musicians and everyone in their own spaces, um, but you know, through the beauty of technology, doing this beautiful, beautiful piece together. Um, and all you have to do, it's free. You know, you can look at it on your computer. Um, the beauty of, I think, poetry in this internet age is that this very portable art form can zoom around. So if you look at poets.org, poem, poem a day, um, uh, a beautiful event I was part of the other night called Shelter in Poems uh, that's on YouTube, where it, different interesting kinds of people, not just poets, read poems that they cherished. Dan Rather reading a poem that he cherished. Um, uh, and it was a beautiful thing to see. And all of that is available to us. Um, in addition to talking to the human beings with whom we have relationships who love us and wish us well and are our fellow journey people in this life. That's the language we ought to be taking in. And uh, end on this. You've, you, you are a, a poet, an author, a scholar, and now you are the, a foundation president you're all those things all at all at once in given the time that we are in what gives you hope what gives me hope so much history gives me hope uh because um history shows us if we think about african-american history african-american studies my own field um of scholarship uh to think of going through uh, chattel slavery, uh, to think of going through Jim Crow and segregation, to think about um, being defined three-fifths of a human being, uh, all of those things that have characterized uh, Black people's historical experience in this country, and yet to have come out of that uh, with, uh, to speak to my area in particular, the most brilliant culture, I'll just say it, (laughs) on planet Earth. Uh, The African-American cultural artistic contribution to this planet, Uh, uh, the voices of, uh, you know, an Aretha Franklin, I mean, I could go on, Uh, that these gifts have come from people who have been through that, who have been defined less than human. So, History, studying it well, gives me tremendous hope. And, uh, you know, young people give me hope. Um, I'm very excited to say that last night, my oldest son turned in his senior thesis. So uh, we have a college graduate. Congratulations. Yes. And so, I mean, I see him and his friends and they are full of energy and they're full of laughter and they're full of joy and they're full of rage. They're pissed off. And they're smart as hell, and they're trying to figure out how to be useful young people. Um, And that gives me tremendous hope because multiply them by the millions. Um, And then finally, you know, our elders, our elders who have lived through so much uh, and who are telling us, you know, to to, to quote uh, the gospel, you know, how I got over, 
how I got over. Mm -hmm. uh, my soul looks back and wonder how I got over. Uh, that gives me tremendous hope as well. Elizabeth Alexander, president of the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And I also forgot to mention the the person who recited the poem Praise Song for the Day at the 2009 inauguration of President Barack Obama. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. This was a hopeful joy to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.